This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. If you've gone furniture shopping, you're probably familiar with Ethan Allen, a store that has built a reputation for quality and style. While the retailer has been around since 1932, they really expanded their brand and transformed into one of the top home furnishing companies in the last 30 years. That's after Farouk Karthwari took over as chairman, president, and CEO of Ethan Allen Interiors in 1988. This role is far from where Kathwari started. He was born in Kashmir, the Muslim-majority, politically divided region in northern India. He left home as a refugee after taking part in street demonstrations and came to the U.S. He got his graduate degree from New York University and worked as a financial analyst at Bear Stearns and a CFO at Rothschild & Company before being recruited by Ethan Allen. All the while, Kathwari has remained true to his roots, dedicating himself to the cause of peace in Kashmir and other places places, making sure his company operates in a way that is sustainable and socially responsible, and working with global leaders on human rights issues, among other things. Mr. Kathwari has a new book out about his journey and values that he promotes. It's titled Trailblazer, From the Mountains of Kashmir to the Summit of Global Business and Beyond, and he joins us right now. Farooq, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be to, to join you. Thank you. And, and I guess it is easy to 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 connect your early years in Kashmir to what you are trying to do outside of your your life as CEO of of Ethan Allen, and and obviously it plays a role into and into how you approach the company. But how important that region and finding peace in that region is. Well, it is very, very important, and it has, of course, been a very important part of my life. I grew up in a family that was half in, involved with arts and crafts. They were merchants dealing with Kashmiri arts and crafts and, and the world-famous Pashmina wool and the Kashmir blue sapphires. On the other side, my father was in politics. He had studied law and joined the government. So uh, growing up um, in an area which is, of course, beautiful, great culture, I grew up uh, playing sports. And sports was very, very important for me. It kept me busy. And invariably, I was a captain of a number of teams, and including cricket. So cricket was very important in the sense it helped me uh, develop a team, develop uh, ideas about leadership, and because in cricket, the captain plays with the team, mm-hmm. strategizes with the team, chairs with the team. So that was very, very important. Also, living in the mountains, it also taught me about uh, dignity. There, people are simple. They treat each other with dignity. They respect um, people of all different, uh, of different economic levels. They eat together. So... Uh, those all those were very important in my growing up and of course to play cricket I did not do what normally was expected that is to study medicine or engineering (laughs) I studied English literature and political science and at age 20 ended up through all kinds of unusual circumstances in New York yeah so your family from what I understand when you were when you were young was separated uh, and I guess part of it had gone to Pakistan? Yes. Well, what happened was that Kashmir, uh, you know, the history of Kashmir is that 
while it is the official name is Jammu and Kashmir, the Kashmir region is the one where the the, the ethnic Kashmiris live. Mm-hmm. Actually, in its uh, native language, it is called Kashir. Okay. And the language of Kashir is, and the person coming from Kashir is kosher. And uh, okay. These about at this time there approximately six million people in that region. It's a beautiful valley surrounded by mountains, and it had been independent throughout through many many years, almost a, almost a thousand years. But it lost its independence, <laughs> like for Kashmir would say yesterday, but it was 1586, and then through many many different political situations, it this area was enlarged into different regions, mm-hmm. or added on, and it became this region of Jammu and Kashmir. But the main area of conflict, the area where the problem is the Kashmiri-speaking area. And that's where I grew up. And that's where my family was involved with it. And when uh, the Indian subcontinent was divided, and Kashmir, about 60% came under Indian control, 40% came under Pakistan control, and my father, we were all in the, in the Indian control, as I said, that is the main Kashmiri-speaking area is there. Mm-hmm. He decided to go to the other side for a business visit and then was not allowed to come back. Mm. And because at that time they thought that there will be a plebiscite which the United Nations had, had uh, agreed upon. Uh, and he went there and became an official of the Pakistan-controlled Kashmir while we were living on the <laughs> Indian-controlled side. So while I was just under five years old, my father asked, was able to arrange for myself, my two other siblings, and my mother to to go to the Pakistan-controlled side, while my older brother, who was, I think, eight or nine, and my sister, who was ten, stayed with our grandfather. We thought we were going to go for a, at max for a few, few months or a year. Right. We ended st- staying there for ten years, and after ten years, we were allowed to go back to the main part of Kashmir, which is on the on the Indian administered side. But at some point, your your father ended up coming to the United States, and then and then you came here as well. That's right. My father stayed on the other side, and then he got a job in the New York's World Fair. And when he was here, because for, yeah, for ten years or so. He had, or by that time, 14 years, he had not come back to his home. Right. And he was here, got united at the World's Fair, and that's where he decided that perhaps uh, he would help me by sending me applications from New York University, Columbia University, City College of New York, because, you know, he was looking at New York area. And then I applied, and it's uh, not an easy, (laughs) and as I say in my journey, it was very, very hard to get out because of my papers, because of having lived on both sides. My papers were not right, but many, many people helped, and I was lucky, and I was able to come to, to, to New York at, uh, at, at you know, about eight, uh, 20 years old. But you tell a story in the book, and I, I found this interesting, that, that not only getting to New York was a, was a challenge, actually trying to get on the plane to get out of India to get to New York was a challenge. Yes, it was, because I didn't have the papers. First of all, uh, the first challenge was 
that I had to appear in a business entrance test in Bombay and going from Kashmir to there, that was a story by itself because uh, the, the pilots, those days the Indian airline pilots, would decide whether they are going to leave Kashmir if the passes were clear. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, the decisions were not necessarily uh, based upon uh, the weather. They wanted to stay in Kashmir. The weather was good. However, I had to convince a pilot to really go, and that was the first. The other one was that coming to America. And it was, I didn't have the right papers, because when we came from the Pakistan administered side to the Indian administered side, uh, we had given some, we were given some temporary papers, and... Um, all of those had expired. I was never. I was not thinking of coming to America, but I was able to really. It was an experience and an adventure, and uh, and <laughs> lots of people helped me, and uh, ended up in uh, in America. You talk about your entrepreneurial spirit. Where did that come from? Do you think? Well, it came from by being having to live by myself because when I, we went to the Pakistan administered side. I was somewhat more or less on my own because we lived in a in a place which was 8,000 feet. My father was not there most of the time. He was in business. I mean, working in the politics. My mother was not well, so I had to sort of fend for myself. And even at age 12, I had to go to a different city to to go to classes. And I became a commuter at age 12, lived by myself. And all those sort of uh, helped me, you might say, with my entrepreneurial attitude, but also mm-hmm. sports helped me. Uh, th- th- that was a saving grace for me. At all levels, I was deeply involved with sports. And almost, you know, that became my family. We're joined by Farooq Kathwari, who is the author of the book Trailblazer, From the Mountains of Kashmir to the Summit of Global Business and Beyond. Uh, Farooq is the uh, president and CEO of furniture retailer Ethan Allen. You're listening to Knowledge of Wharton here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. So you get the opportunity eventually to get here to the United States. And, and having had your father send, send you all of these different ideas uh, of colleges, I, I was was college your first thought when you were coming here to the U.S.? Well, of course, I did get. Um, I came on a student visa because that was that's how I came. Okay. And so, uh, yes, I had studied, uh, just finished a BA in Kashmir. And of course, in Kashmir at that time, high school was ten years and uh, college was four years, so it was a little bit less than what we have here. Right. Uh, and so it was like uh, an associate degree, but of course. Over there, it was a BA, and I did appear in the, uh, the graduate business admissions test, as I said, in Bombay. Must have done well because I got uh, admission to uh, New York University. And when I came here, I had to decide and get help of what should I study. I, I, I was late because of the conflict in, in that part of the world late in getting papers. I was about three or three weeks or so late in attending classes. So I had an advisor. He suggested, um, why don't I study accounting and mm-hmm. get a job? I went in there. There were debits and credits and all the stuff. I said, no. Then he said, how about economics? It was, again, a lot of graphs. I said, no. Then he said, marketing. I said, I never heard the terminology. And I said, what is marketing? He said, marketing means convincing people of ideas of what to do. It's like selling and convincing. I said, I can do that. <laughs> so, my, so I studied marketing. However, I had to get a job. 
because yep. my father had, was here for three months, and after that I was on my own, living in Queens, and, uh, the New York area. That's World's Fair was there. And so I saw an ad. It said, bookkeeper. I asked my class fellows. It was downtown Manhattan, Canal Street, and they said, yeah. I said, what is bookkeeping? I'd never seen a calculator. I'd never seen any books. They said, don't apply. But anyway, I went in, and I was able to convince, and of course, somebody really helped me there uh, to get the job and taught me about bookkeeping. Yeah. And it was the owner of that small printing company who then suggested, he said, you know, why don't you go and work on Wall Street? Because NYU Graduate School of Business was uh, next to Wall Street. So I said, okay, I went to the first building on Wall Street. And in fact, this, the owner of this printing company where I worked said, tell them you want a job as a financial analyst. And of course, I had no idea what a financial analyst does. I went into the first building, one Wall Street, walked up, and on the 16th floor, got a job with Bear Stearns as a junior financial analyst. And uh, while I was still going to school, and also while I was at that printing company, my grandfather and, and, my, and, and my father, by that time, my father had gone back to Kashmir after about uh, close to... Uh, 17 years, 16, 17 years of being in exile. He finally went home to his to see his parents, to, mm-hmm. to see his two other children, and also to to see his family. And so they, they, he asked my grandfather, who was the head of our business, family and business, uh, to arrange to send me 10 or 12 wicker baskets of arts and crafts yeah. from Kashmir. Yeah. And they did, and then I said, where would I sell them? So I, at NYU, we had received a lecture from Marvin Traub, CEO of Bloomingdale's, very well-respected uh, merchant. So I called him up, 8, 10, 12 days every day. First they said, no, I'm busy, busy, can't see you. Finally, I think they got tired, and he saw me, and I took a few of these uh, uh, handcrafted items, and they liked it. He had brought in a merchant. And... They placed an order, so I was now in business. So I said, "If Bloomingdale's, why not Lawton Taylor's? Why not others?" Sure, yeah. So, so I so I started the business. But while I was at Bear, after this, um, this um, the, the first company was called the Imperial Envelope Company. It had two partners, and A printed the envelopes, and Sally did everything else, and I was the bookkeeper. But at Bear Stearns, I worked there for a year or so, and somehow. My name got around, and the Rothschilds, the European Rothschilds, had set up a company in uh, New York near Wall Street, and uh, somehow my name came up. The portfolio manager who ran a $100 million fund needed an assistant, and I got the job. And, but I continued my entrepreneurial uh, background of selling Kashmiri arts and crafts. Now, I had many, many, many more customers, and it was there at the Rothschild Company that one of my associates said to me that he knows the founder of Ethan Allen. And Ethan Allen used to be in New York City. I would like to meet him. I did. He called in a merchant, said, this young man is from Kashmir. Do we get anything from there? She said, yes, we get this fabric. Hand-embroidered fabric never comes on time. Always a problem. So he looks at me and said, you can help? I said, absolutely. I had no idea. But I got in the fabric business. 
not easy because you know you can say yes you will do it but the thing is you have to do it you just can't say so so that was really that to me is an important thing that when you, when you say absolutely then you got to deliver right how do you how do you when you look at, at those days when you were doing uh, these items that ended up being sold to different retailers, how do you view th- at that time thinking about entrepreneurship as a whole in comparison to now? Because I, I think there's more conversation, more surrounding entrepreneurship. People you know, don't have the, the concern of going out on their own and starting their own business today. Was there that kind of mindset back in the 60s and 70s? I would, of course, entrepreneurs have been around forever, but it was much more limited than what you see today, especially today you have entrepreneurs who have been able to really flourish with the age of uh, the technology, the Mm -hmm. internet. And at that time, that was not the case. That time, you know, when I had to take fabrics, in fact, I got bursitis on my shoulders because I had to carry all these samples yeah. in big cases because we didn't even have wheels those days on, you know, these um, uh, carrying cases. So it was, it was quite diff- difficult at that time. Yes, today things with, the, with technology, information is somewhat easier. But I think the attitude of entrepreneurship has always existed in the world. So you get, you get the opportunity to, to, to meet the people behind Ethan Allen, and, and you come on board with them. As you started to, to kind of get a feel for what, that, what the company was, there were probably some things that, that you saw and noticed that, that probably could be changed, adapted to, to make the company better in general, correct? Well, absolutely. I first came in in selling the fabrics. And then, uh, while I was still working at the Rothschild Company, and by that time I had become the chief financial officer of the Rothschild Company, I think my, my age 26 or so, and which is remarkable. You know, I don't think any other country, or very, very few countries would have that opportunity that America provides. Right. And, uh, and if you work, you are, you're hardworking, and you're able to produce, you are given the opportunity. And it was, um, again, about a year or so later, Nat and Sal was the founder of Ethan Allen. He's the one that I met. And he calls me again and said, you know, we're having trouble getting rugs from Romania and India. Can you help? I said, absolutely. I had no idea where Romania was, and I had no idea where rugs in India were made. Well, I inquired, spent time, even took a week off, went to India, found some resources, luck also is a role. And I started a business of providing rugs to Ethan Allen. And at that time, Ethan Allen was a manufacturing company, and it had Ethan Allen galleries or stores operated by licensees all over the country. Right. Very well respected, known. It was a colonial early American brand and, uh, and, uh, and about 30 manufacturing Operations from Maine to Vermont to Western New York, Pennsylvania, Virginia, North Carolina, even one or two in the West. And uh, was not in retail. And the retailers were, uh, were individual families operating at that time about 250 Ethan Allen stores. And that's the time uh, he called me and he said, uh, why don't you join the company? Right. You're a merchant. 
So I thought about it and I said, how about if we have a partnership that I will give up my job, we'll set up a company and my company will develop products from all over the world right. to supplement what Ethan Allen makes in the States. Well, first he was surprised, but then he agreed and we set up a company called KEA International. Huh. I was I was thinking of branding at that time, Kathwari Ethan Allen. And that company did well. I had to, of course, give up my job, and, and I was doing well. It was a big risk to take. And um, the first place I, I went to really focus on, in addition to the business that I was doing in Kashmir and also in India, was Italy. Set up an office in Florence, Italy. Got two great people to work with me. Right. And from there, went to Portugal, Germany. In fact, I was one of the first persons even go to China and and develop products from all over the world. And that company did well for the next um, uh, about 10 years or so. You also talk about the fact in the book that you also had to tackle pricing structure, uh, specifically within the stores that, that uh, are around the United States as well, because the pricing structure for different items was different. And I guess there were there was some concern by some of the store owners maybe out on the West Coast in comparison to what you may have seen here in, uh, on the East Coast. No, absolutely. In fact, once uh, um, uh, that was when I merged my company with, to Ethan Allen. Ethan Allen was, as I said, but they had taken the company, the two founders, Nad and Sal and Ted Baumritter, had taken the company public in the 60s. And by, um, by, the, by 80s, um, the company was acquired by a conglomerate. That was the age of the conglomerate. Yeah. Uh, so a conglomerate, a company called Interco in St. Louis, uh, decided that they will be. They were in the shoe business, Florsheim shoes, Converse shoes. Then they got into uh, apparel companies, and mm -hmm. they said, "Well, then they go in the furniture business." So they bought Ethan Allen, they bought a, a Broyhill and Lane, three major brands at that time, and became the largest supplier of furniture in the U.S. So. That is the time when Nat and Sal also asked me to come and join Ethan Allen from, uh, from this partnership, the joint venture we had. And uh, I didn't want to come to Connecticut. That's where Ethan Allen had moved to from New York City. Right. I, I was living in close to New York, and I had little kids, and I thought that would be the way I should live. And I was an entrepreneur. Ethan Allen had you know, at least 25, 30 uh, vice presidents, very people with a lot of knowledge. So I, he insisted, and after some time, I thought I'll say something that he would say, forget it. I said, if I have to come, then I have to take your job. Oh, wow. <laughs> he looked at me, he was surprised. He said, what? I said, no, I understand. You may not want to do that. Well, he said, okay. I understand, but you'll have to prove to me when you come here that you can do my job. Yeah. I said, well, if you understand, that's the reason I'm going to come. That's fine. So I joined the company. And then I had to start transforming the company. For instance, as you just mentioned, Ethan Allen was more innovative than many, many companies. Right. Ethan Allen had established his own Ethan Allen dealers around the country. However, these folks operated like entrepreneurs do. They had their own pricing because most of the products was shipped from the East Coast yeah. all over the country. Different pricing, different marketing. 
And I, having my background of a cricket captain, I wanted a team. I sure. wanted everybody yeah. to play together. So I suggested that we will have one marketing program, a national brand. But to do that, we had to address many issues. One major one was the fact of logistics. So we, anyway, we handled that and started delivering our products at one cost nationally. So with that, we could have one marketing program. It started bringing the team together. Right. And we, in fact, then changed the product lines. We changed the looks of the stores. And, uh, and also, at the same time, this, in, this conglomerate came under a hostile takeover. Those were the uh, 80s was the lots of hostile sure. activity was going on. Yeah. And so Interco came under a hostile. And one of the ways they fought it was raise, give, uh, raise a lot of debt so that the hostile person might just leave. Sure. That's what they did. Yeah. What uh, quickly? I have uh, just a few seconds left, and I, I want to thank you for coming on the show. It, but what is the future for Ethan Allen when you're talking about the the, the role of e-commerce today? I think that today technology is tremendously important, but technology combined with personal services is critical. We right. have uh, fifteen hundred interior designers. They are today chatting online. They are today, we have 3D augmented reality. Our manufacturing has technology. We used to have 30 plants. Now we have six producing more than the 30 plants did. The technology across the board is tremendously important. Farouk, thank you very much for coming on the show. Greatly appreciated. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 